but we cannot say that every student automatically passes every class next year just because we take pity. That is not holding high expectations. That's not preparing kids for college graduation and persisting through an awesome career. And so we have to think really differently about the grading policy next year. Welcome to the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Terry Eisman. As UCLA's graduates venture off into the real world, one of their own navigates the maze of Los Angeles school politics. Since her time as a Columbia undergrad, she's fought for education equity, or what she dubs the civil rights issue of our time. Here now with the lowdown, Tanya Ortiz Franklin, candidate for LAUSD's school board District 7 seat. Tanya, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. And as I told you just before we started this, you know, I had no idea that um, that you were a candidate. And I also learned that you're a Bruin. You went to UCLA uh, <laughs> Law School, which makes things 100% better, you know, for the students listening to, to this. <laughs> you know, they can certainly um, understand your experience. So I'm so grateful to have you here. You're running for um, Richard Vladovic's seat. Uh, Richard Vladovic is a board member who represents the communities of San Pedro, Gardena, um, Torrance. So before we get, a, get into your campaign planks and learn about what your vision is for the school district, I want to learn a little, about, a little bit about you. So can you just tell me briefly about your upbringing and what your mission is in your personal and your professional life? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I appreciate starting with you know, the who before we get into all the, the what and the future. Um, well, we got to learn about you. <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I really appreciate that. So I was raised by a single mom who immigrated from Mexico when she was a child um, in Lomita and Harbor City. So I grew up in LA Unified schools that I'm hoping to represent. Uh, yes. I graduated from Narbonne High School in 2001 alongside less than half of my incoming freshman class. And at 17, that hit me as really unfair and not how the world should be. Um, I was sort of uniquely um, positioned in, in my um, high school to be the only one to go to an Ivy League, which was, you know, not, just not the history of how we were prepared. We were prepared in the magnet program to go to college. Um, right. But I, you know, I looked out at my class and, and thought, you know, what happened to the 50% that started with us? Where are they now? What supports did they get or not get? Um, what does our district and our system need to do differently so that kids from my community are not experiencing this 20 years from now? Um, right. So I went to Columbia, great experience, learned about privilege in a whole new way, um, and came back to teach actually in Carson. So half mm -hmm. of my students went to my high school, um, and it was really fun going to alumni, you know, football games and seeing my former students. Um, but I, right. I taught in Carson um, through Teach for America, which really does align to my personal vision that educational inequity is the civil rights movement of our time. I think there's there's so much social and racial justice that goes into that, but every kid deserves to go to college and deserves a system that believes in them and prepares them holistically. So mm -hmm. I taught for five years, then I got laid off um, in 2010 with the massive budget cuts in the last Great Recession. And, you know, again, I was fortunate to sort of, you know, be one of few who had a plan uh, to go to law school, <laughs> in part because, you know, I well, you made it that adversity an opportunity, which I think yeah. is quite admirable. And a, a, a big, you know, loan. Um. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> that goes without saying. <laughs> Which yeah. are, you know, fortunately on pause right now. Um, 
but I, I went knowing that I would do public service and, and have sure. forgiveness. Um, but I loved yeah. UCLA, loved the, the law school. I uh, specialized in critical race and public interest, um, right. knowing that I wanted to come back to education in um, law and policy. So I was a special ed attorney for all of one year. I had a fellowship through the law school after graduation. Um, and, I, and I wanted to make a bigger impact. I wanted to work with more schools and kids and, and the system at large. So mm -hmm. uh, I started actually between my first and second year of law school, where I work now at the Partnership for LA Schools, which manages mm -hmm. traditional, not charter, uh, LA Unified Schools in Boyle Heights, South LA and Watts. Many of them are schools that I would get to serve as board member. Um, and my work focuses on school culture, um, student discipline, social emotional learning, attendance. So you really, you already have an intimate sort of understanding of what these schools need, right? Yeah. Because you're already serving them. And, and I get to work alongside teachers mm -hmm. and principals and families and students who, you know, want the yeah. best for their future. Um, and so that really is my impetus for even launching the campaign is District 7 runs from, you know, MLK Boulevard in South LA down to right. San Pedro covering some of the communities you mentioned. It is so diverse and I appreciate that. And I think there's real it's opportunity. It's a vast territory. It is. It's yeah. huge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and people have different perspectives about what it takes to prepare kids for college, about what student safety means, about how we should be allocating our resources. And so, you know, part of why I'm running is to be able to understand those diverse perspectives and mm -hmm. make sure the next leader is taking into consideration all of the factors that um, will result in more of our kids being given the choice to go to college once they graduate. Can I ask you this? So I know, so you taught sixth grade at Stephen White Middle School. You met, you already mentioned this in Carson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously teaching is a really hard profession. <laughs> you have to have so much great. You have to juggle a ton. When you were there, what were the biggest flaws of, of sort of, of the system at large, of maybe, maybe locally that you thought were just ridiculous, that sort of propelled you into advocacy? I mean, what, what did you notice on that sort of, um, um, grassroots level that maybe other people don't notice. I'll give you one example. One year I taught in sixth grade, it's core. So English and mm -hmm. history. Um, so I'd have my kids for two periods. Uh, yeah. One year I taught both a gifted line and a special education RSP line. And so I had a co-teacher with me and the standards are the same. And my job is to differentiate for students at various levels. Um, and it was an interesting challenge, you know, intellectually for me to plan for those unique groups. But the thing that sort of hit me the hardest about that year was my students with, with IEPs, individualized education plans, had so many um, services that needed to be met by me and the co-teacher. And the co-teacher and I never had time to plan together. And so the idea of meeting these diverse needs but not giving teachers the time to plan, look at student work, reflect, um, felt to me like, like, how are we supposed to do this given the hours available in the day? And I also had um, an auxiliary, which means your mm -hmm. conference period is a class that you teach. Is it not day. a conference period? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, and I've heard a, of that. <laughs> yeah. And I was, I was a, a cheerleading coach at the same time. <laughs> and, Did you, you know, feel that it was clinical, though, that you just had to kind of move as a robot and not really think about what your kids really need? It was that... Is that what it felt like? I'll say sometimes when you think about scaffolding and differentiating for different needs, um, right. the the strategies can actually be similar across, you know, scaffolding up, scaffolding down. Um, yeah. And 
And I don't think that it was a robot for me because I, I did have like Saturday trainings with Teach for America folks um, and I had some planning time with them, but I did feel like the system wasn't actually thinking about what it took to meet the different needs of kids. It was like, here's what it looks like on paper, sign this matrix and you're going right. to teach the, this um, subject in these orders, but sort of like looking back and, and what do the adults need to really feel supported and prepared and um, it really comes down to, to time and, and preparation with teachers. That's sort of how time. I felt to me is like, yeah. here's the demands, but you might not get the support to meet those demands. Was there ever one moment where you wanted to help a student say, but or, you know, you saw that somebody was struggling, but just because of, of the sort of how the chess pieces were laid out, it was difficult to sort of meet that. Does any moment sort of jump out at you? Um, I'm thinking about a student um, that I had in sixth grade and I, I was thinking about like what he would be exposed to in seventh grade. We had an AVID program, which is more for middle of the road kids um, trying to get like extra support for college yeah. preparation. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking he had the desire and had a lot of um, what many people might see as like discipline challenges. He, he wanted to talk his learning out loud, right? He wanted to be in other groups and not be sitting and, and, and listening for so long. And I remember I had to like have real conversations with the AVID teacher about what it would take to get him into AVID because other people had sort of heard, oh, he's had some disciplinary incidents with the dean. Um, is that really going to be a good fit for this class when, you know, intellectually, social, emotionally, like he was a right fit, but there was sort of this um, like messaging around his behaviors that was really unfair for, I thought, like a longer term trajectory. So, mm -hmm. you know, he made it in and sure, it's a challenge. Every student has, you know, challenges, which I think is part of why people go into the teaching profession is to right. um, take on those challenges and help students, you know, long term persevere and succeed. Um, sure. And so, you know, I, I felt like that was an example of where had I not really thought about what he needed and taken the time to talk to the other teacher, I don't know that he would have gotten into that program and then been as prepared for high school and then for college, right? Because other people could just look at him and say like, oh, this is not exactly a college material student, which is totally unfair. Right. You know, speaking of college preparedness, I want to drill down on a, on a couple of things. Um, so I just peeked in very cursorily today into the California, I think it's like the, the school dashboard, I think it is. And of LAUSD's class of 2019, 41.1% of students were not prepared for college. And actually, this was up from the previous year. I'll grant you just uh, less than by 1%, but still up. And of course, as tends to happen, unfortunately, there were certain groups, African Americans, Native Americans, who performed worse than um, Caucasian students and Asian students. So we see those kinds of structural inequalities playing out all amidst this graduation standard of a D in LAUSD. If you could wave a magic wand and <laughs> enact policies to sort of exponentially increase academic performance, what would you do? Because 41% of people not being prepared for college is sort of gobsmacking to me, isn't it? Yeah, well, and we say, here's your LA Unified Diploma, go be successful in the world, this is meaningful, and yet you are ineligible for our state colleges. In an ultra-competitive so, world. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, 100% agree with you. I think it's shocking that, you know, half of our graduates are ineligible for college. And, and that says something about the system. Um, so this has been a political fight for many years, right? If we believe, yeah. honestly, and I do, that every child deserves to go to college, then we need a system that prepares them for that. Um, many, many years ago, community advocates asked the district to align graduation requirements with UC and CSU entrance requirements. And so right. the A through G classes are required, but we in LA Unified accept a D, which is unacceptable for college entrance. And even just during the pandemic, we now, you know, currently are not even giving fails. Um, even if a student had a fail before the pandemic, everyone is earning a D or better. So do you think that's right? No. <laughs> No. That was a, a good question right in there. <laughs> you know, I think for the pandemic, there were some real challenges to struggle with of how long would this be? And do we punish students as we're still figuring out the adult ways of doing things? And I empathize with that for sure. And right. looking for next year. And, and there's still a lot to be determined about next year and a lot that's still unknown. But we cannot say that every student automatically passes every class next year just because we take pity. That is not holding high expectations. That's not preparing kids for college graduation and persisting through an awesome career. And so we have to think really differently about the grading policy next year. Um, but so going back to, yeah. go ahead. Go, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just I was just going to ask, since you're talking about this, do you think this is just like an easy way out to sort of acquiesce, you know, put our put, you know, the boards, the LAUSD boards hands up and say, look, we maybe don't know the best way to address what's going on right now. So we'll just, you know, lower the standards even more, right? Even more than the D, because that's obviously not acceptable in any university. Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard, right? And I have empathy and we do sure. want to be trauma informed and be thinking about all the challenges that our students and families are facing right now and even our school staff. Right. And yet, if we're truly centered on resilience and healing and growth, then it's not about lowering standards, but it's about accommodating mm. and scaffolding and, and meeting the needs so that kids can feel prepared at the grade level and with the, the time that we're given that is really different. Yeah. Um, and so I agree, you know, there have been calls to up the graduation requirements to a C, but I think it's political to say our graduation rate is over 80%. If we um, move the needle from D to C, that's going to plummet um, to 40, 50%, just given what the rate is right now for college entrance. Right, right. And that scares people, right? To say that we're not actually doing as well by our kids as we think we are. That's hard to look in the mirror and say, ouch, like, what do we need to do differently? And, and I get it, right? Like standards have been increasing over time. We've now been in a decade of common core. Um, and we actually have to set a very clear vision to say, are we preparing high school graduates with, um, you know, sort of a, a D being uh, sufficient, or are we preparing future college graduates and and folks who are career oriented um, in whatever way they pursue after high school, but they have that choice and that full preparation to be eligible at the minimum. So what's, what's your vision? What policies do you want to see that would rectify, that would sort of even level the playing field uh, between um, the different groups of students? How do you make that work? 
Well, first, I need to I think we need to actually like ask that question of everyone in our district. Do we believe every child can graduate college ready? And I don't think we're there yet, honestly. And and I think that will uncover some biases that will uncover some challenges about like our own skills to help get kids there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to set that that marker, right, that big goal. And once we set a big goal, as with every strategic plan, you backwards map and say, what are the strategies that are going to get us there? And does our budget reflect how we think this is going to happen. And right now, our budget is sort of a reflection of, you know, various conversations and and, um, politics and and lawsuits and movements Mm -hmm. and collective Mm -hmm. bargaining agreements and so many different things, not really a holistic vision that says college readiness for everyone. Uh, Here's the strategies to get there that we've included community voice, students, parents, various groups. Um, and let's invest in that and then check our progress, right? How are we doing? If we want to say, you know, five years from now, 20 years from now, like what is the long game? Let's really backwards map and have some real progress monitoring, um, which is obviously challenging right now and <laughs> without a smarter balance assessment. And um, so I think we, we have a lot of work to do about measuring progress towards that goal. But step one is, do we even share that goal? Does your vision include increasing that uh, the the standard the, the grade standard to a C? You know, long term. It does. Yeah, it does. Okay, let me ask you this though, because you you mentioned the graduation rate, which I think is very important because. Um, you know, I think uh, the few of us that actually do listen to the LAUSD school board meetings, and I like to listen to them j- just because I think, I actually think they're very interesting. And many of my peers would probably just be like, what is he talking about? Yeah, but many I do listen- older than you as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because I hear a lot of the uh, school board members really um, zeroing, zeroing into the graduation rate. And it's interesting to me because, you know, while the graduation rate is going up, the academic performance, you know, to reiterate, is stagnant or is getting worse, incrementally worse, you know, obviously like a, a, a small um, sort of worsening, but never nonetheless, right? So would you say that that is a misleading benchmark to look at when evaluating how well students are doing? And, and would you sort of change that? Because it seems like every board member, regardless of, you know, sort of who you speak to or ideology, everyone says, oh, but look at our graduation rate. Yeah, I think, you know, so if college is our North Star and and college is a choice, right? Not that everyone has to choose college, but that they are fully prepared to choose college. If that's our North Star, then we need to backwards map some real indicators that show students are prepared. And yes, Mm -hmm. I think it includes, you know, smarter balance assessments that sort of demonstrate grade level readiness. and, and grade level mastery, right? So when we think about grading policies in the district, um, we have a lot of work to do to make sure we're, we're grading for students' mastery of the standards and not their behavior in class. So if we backwards mapped it, I think you know that includes some of the academic preparation, but so much of college persistence is also social emotional preparation. And we have a real challenge of even just some basic um, metrics like chronic absenteeism. And that is one of the most disproportionate metrics in our district about who comes to school and therefore can access the learning. And and this is what's really exciting about remote learning and a potential hybrid is maybe more kids can be learning um, if they have been missing school at the rates that they've been missing before, right? But, you know, our goal is 99% or less of students miss 15 days or less of the year. Like, 
15 days of a school year is so many days. It's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and, and that is a real challenge, particularly in some neighborhoods along racial lines. And, sure. and we have to think really differently about addressing that, not as a shaming, like, let's send the DA to your house and, and make parents feel bad for students not coming to school. But maybe there's a relationship challenge between the trust of the school and the family or feeling welcome or language barriers or transiency due to now, especially right job loss and housing insecurity. Like there are so many um, challenges that our families are facing. And if we believe that every child, regardless of challenge face is college material, then we have to think about what they need for holistic college preparation. And yes, it's academic preparation, but it's also Mm -hmm. to cultivate resilience and persistence. And and we don't have metrics for those things right now. You know, we have a a survey that asks about student perception, um, but we don't have a real sort of TK through 12 guidepost to say we are on the path to college readiness. Um, Other Mm -hmm. than, you know, SBAC and a few other assessments, as a district, we don't have this holistic understanding of what it really takes to be a college-ready third grader, sixth grader, eighth grader. Right. By the way, those those tests, while you know, I think it seems like they are they they can be used to evaluate student success. Students aren't really incentivized to do well on those. You're not t- t- <laughs> tests, right? Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially so... if the teacher tells you, like, don't worry, this doesn't matter for your grade. <laughs> But but so but so I think the question is, you know, if you can't even rely on that, what mechanisms do you put in place to actually see what stu- students know? I mean, right? I mean, it's it's this this yeah. big question. What do you do? Well, and I'll say, you know, I don't have all of the answers, and I don't think any sure. leadership professors have all the answers. But yeah. it is incumbent upon folks in leadership roles to bring people together, and particularly teacher voice and parent voice in this in this question in this conversation to say, mm-hmm. how do you know that your child is college ready or your student is college ready? Like, let's build out something together because so mm-hmm. often we take guidance from on high and we see assessments as one more thing or not really helpful or taking away from instructional minutes. But if we had a diverse coalition of interesting ideas and perspectives about what it would take to progress monitor and then use that progress monitoring to support instruction, then I think people could get really energized to say LA Unified actually has a plan to say that every college is on, every student is on path for for college, right? Like, I don't know that we could point to a district that can easily say, here's our metric. We came to this with community voice, with diverse perspectives and those who are closest to kids parents and, and teachers, obviously. Um, and, and that is something that we could be proud of to, to say the number of kids that are ready um, and not just because of one assessment that is currently on pause because of the pandemic, like a holistic measure. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the bright background uh, for for this conversation is the pandemic. And in light of, and not just the pandemic, but um, the, mur- the, the murder of, of George Floyd and all of the sort of unrest that followed and people's frustration and the pain um, that we have sort of seen surface and, and bubble up. I want to ask you, you know, the, the president of the teachers union, UTLA, is uh, calling for the dissolution of the LA USD school police. He basically says, look, we should take we should take this money, funnel it to mental health, to counselors, um, which 
you know, some say is a good idea. Other people say that it might not be a very good idea. Is that a good idea in your eyes? Is that a viable sort of solution to um, combating systemic inequalities and also protecting schools? Um, I don't disagree that we need more mental health support and counseling, particularly mm. because of the pandemic and because of the multiple viruses happening right now, right, with coronavirus right. and racism that has been around for so long. And I think, um, you know, lots of folks have said it's it's not that it's that, that there's more of it, but it's being captured on videotape. And that is impacting right. our students and impacting our families and our educators and, and school staff as well. And so we do need more time to really think about um, not just like anti-bias training, but what does it take to have an anti-racist school? What does it take to have an anti-racist classroom? And mm -hmm. we're all in individual journeys, but we need to be on a collective journey as an entire school system to say, you know, no child will feel unsafe on campus. And I think about safety really holistically. So, so yes, there's physical safety that, you know, we often think of some sort of uniformed um, personnel helping with. Um, but more than that, there's intellectual safety in the classroom. Are you comfortable sure. taking risks and, and making mistakes in front of your classmates, which helps you grow and, and is a, a true testament to a real growth mindset in the classroom, right? Are you yeah. social emotionally safe if you're, you're feeling worried? worried or frustrated or angry is there an adult you can go to or are those adults you know trained to proactively seek uh, behaviors that are demonstrating some of those needs that might not be articulated particularly given you know the age or experience of a student and so I do think we need to sort of again right like if we really believe kids are social emotionally holistically prepared for college have we set this vision have we uh, created a budget that that sets us on that path mm -hmm. um, and I definitely I definitely think we need more, you know, social workers, more mental health supports, and honestly, a lot more training and support for teachers that yeah. doesn't just feel like one more thing, but feels integrated into the, all the responsibilities that they already have, you know? Sure. Um, and so the question, though, of, you know, taking from LA school police and just moving it to, to mental health supports. Right. Dissolving um, the police department. Right. It's, it's really one that I would like to have in community. And actually, I, I am working on a town hall. We just sent out um, an announcement to, to our team and our, our, our list um, mm -hmm. to invite folks to a diverse conversation, um, because absolutely, I hear the voice of young people that we need to decriminalize um, our school system and make sure kids feel safe. And, and sometimes mm -hmm. police are not the indicator of safety for our, our young people. Um, and I hear the concerns of principals to say, if something is really um, drastic on campus, who is running towards that, right? Who is running towards the weapon or towards, you know, multiple students fighting if things have gotten out of control? Is that the psychiatric social worker whose responsibility yeah. it is to run towards that? Um, or is there somebody else I call? And if it's not LA school police, is it LAPD? Is it the sheriffs? And in this given moment, what we're seeing, you know, on, again, on video from yes. the last couple of weeks, like, we don't want to be calling LAPD or the sheriffs to our campuses, not right now. Um, and I don't know if ever, right? What I understand is that LASPD, the school police, yeah. has more you know, training in adolescent development. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's something for LAPD or the sheriffs to also take on, right? Yeah. But 
I don't. So you're think open. That, you're open to this, right? You're open to the I'm conversation. Open to the conver exactly. A conversation about Got what it. it takes long term to make sure Got our it. kids are are feeling safe, right? And I don't think it's a, a split to second decision. I, you know, the school board's yeah. going to look at the budget in a couple of weeks for next year. I don't mm -hmm. think it's a let's deplete seventy million dollars overnight from one group to another. I think we need a, a long term plan. And and again, it needs to be like strategic and thoughtful and measured. Honestly, I think we haven't measured right the role of school police or the impact of school police. So maybe we need to really start there. Um, other groups have, right? UCLA and the ACLU, like the district needs to take some time to look at that and also talk about it with principals and school police officers. And, and again, with young people who are really elevating the message that I don't feel safe so adults need to listen and and really respond with actions and dollars about what does it take to help you feel safe. You know, it's interesting that you talk about sort of student student voices and all of this, because I remember in the um, you know, when you're talking about the framework of sort of school safety, um, I remember after the Parkland massacre, there was a lot of sort of a groundswell of student um, student advocacy on on many, many campuses, including on LUSD. There were some threats to even walk out of school. Some people did walk out. What's interesting to me is the fact that there's also this other epidemic that we seem to have forgotten, which is school massacres. I think it may be in 2019, and maybe I'm wrong, but there were, what, like 200 school shootings in the United States and nine school shootings in Russia. So clearly, you know, th this is a problem even on an international sort of scale. If, if you were to disband the school police without having other solutions, other mechanisms in place to secure schools, wouldn't they be even more dangerous considering that there are school shootings? And, you know, quite frankly, schools are very open and not very protected for the most part. So... It's interesting you bring this up, and, and I think um, it's important to consider all the ways in which kids have been impacted by safety in this country, and it's important to hang on to a local context, right? LA Unified sure. has not experienced the same sort of situations, yeah. um, and a lot of urban areas haven't experienced what has you know elevated to the national scene on, on school massacres. And there's always the, the fear that something unknown can come onto your campus and threaten your students, and that is every school district employee's number one priority is student safety. Um, I think the, the alternative question is really important um, because what we, uh, I, so I work alongside teachers and, and school leaders all the time and, and we talk about this, like what is it um, going to take to really think differently about how we um, understand uh, risk and uh, potential threats and honestly, like the best way that adults know something is about to happen is because people tell them and they trust them. They have a healthy mm -hmm. relationship. And so they, this happened to me when I was a classroom teacher. Another student told me that they saw a knife in their classmate's backpack. And this is an 11 year old. And, wow. you know, then we brought uh, our dean to talk to her about what um, she was feeling and, and what she needed. And, and that was a scary situation for her more than my mm -hmm. class, right? Because one student told me it didn't happen in front of the entire class. And then they talked to her sort of separately. Um, and I think that we also need to think about like, what are the actual incidents that are happening on campus? Like we're not getting mass shootings in LA Unified. It's not to say that it's never gonna happen, but I get incident reports for the schools that I work with. And the number yeah. one incident report I get is for suicidal ideation. And mm -hmm. that is kids who are 
really calling out for help. Um, and right now, uh, LA Unified has a, a team where a school police officer and a psychiatric social worker can do the assessment and then transport if needed for you know um, psychiatric hospitalization. Um, but that indicates we have a lot more to do with, we need to do a lot more around sure. depression and anxiety and stress and all of the, the emotions that are, are causing kind of the real challenges around student safety of them, you know, their, their own selves. Um, mm. Not necessarily fear from others, but potentially their own actions to harm themselves. Um, so I think it's a big question. It is a big, yeah. long question. I mean, I, I feel the urgency of the moment. I absolutely do. And I think the best decisions yeah. are made with the long view in mind. So as we sort of start to, to wrap things up, your passion for, for your work is clearly so palpable. Um, and I think everyone will will hear that and hear how how genuinely you express your concerns and and what your vision is um, for this for the school district. You're obviously very successful as well. You went to Columbia to UCLA Law. I mean, what's one thing that college aged, even high school kids, even middle school kids could do to sort of advance themselves and help those around them and sort of go further in in the cause of public service if they're so interested in that how can they help their peers in a meaningful way and not just you know nominally if you will yeah and it's tricky now that everything is you know kind of virtual <laughs> um oh, but my first piece it. of advice would be you know to to do the work to to volunteer to intern um to work and, and get paid if you can or need to um because there is a lot you learn about as a student through text and that is absolutely important for shaping your intellect and your understanding of issues but you have to feel it in your body you have to be with people in in spaces where movement work is happening racial and social justice work is is happening. I think public service is, um, again, it's a long game, right? And and part of how you know you really want to do it is, is that you try it on in your heart, in your mind, but in your body. Um, so, so wherever you can, if it's student council, if it's an after-school job. When I was at Columbia, I, um, I tutored for a program called America Reads um, with neighborhood kids. And this is how I knew I wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to work on educational inequity, you know, from my high school experience, but also from working with students with with children i think you know whatever age uh, you are, whatever school situation you might be in, um, find organizations where you can give your your time and your heart and your mind and your body to just try it on. Um, and then also take care of yourself at the same time, because this is hard work and you will feel exhausted emotionally and physically. And uh, if you're going to be in it for the long term, you have to be healthy and well, and that is a lifelong journey as well. So do the work and take care of yourself. <laughs> A big thank you to Tanya Franklin. For more on her strategy to win this November, check out our website, Tanya for LAUSD.com. Thank you for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, stay healthy, and I'll see you right back here on next week's episode of Find Your Call.